everyone. Welcome to the American Blue Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Admiral Tim Gallaudet, CEO of Ocean STL Consulting, former Deputy Administrator of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, also formerly Assistant Secretary of Commerce, and before that, the Oceanographer of the Navy. We're a monthly offering by the American Shoreline Podcast Network and brought to you by Coastal News Today. The American Blue Economy podcast brings together leading voices in the ocean, coastal, and Great Lakes-based economies to expand, expand awareness and collaboration, identify positive solutions to address the many challenges to the ocean economy, such as conflicting uses and climate change, and provide thought leadership on keeping the blue economy at the forefront of American conservation and prosperity. Well, today's show is going to be a little unique. Every now and then, I invite friends to come on and and share their stories. I did that a while back when I invited the discoverer of the wreck of the RMS Titanic, Dr. Robert Ballard, to talk about his memoir. And I'm doing that again today with a great friend and impressive individual, Navy SEAL Captain Retired and Dr. John Coach Havlick. And our focus on this show is going to be leadership. And a lot of listeners of the show know that I brought on some real impressive leaders in the American blue economy. And uh, we spoke a lot about the topic of the blue economy and their contributions. And I thought it would be appropriate in this show to just, just talk about the topic of leadership, explore it a bit with an incredible expert, and, uh, and then maybe just uh, touch on the experiences I've had about leading in the blue economy and what's What's happening today and the opportunities for our listeners and others. And so uh, before we begin, I'd like to, our listeners to know that our media team at Coastal News Today is looking for sponsors. And if you're interested in becoming a sponsor, please contact Tyler at tyler at coastalnewstoday.com or go to coastalnewstoday.com slash advertising. So allow me to introduce our fantastic guest, Dr. John Coach Havlick. John, welcome to the show. Tim, thanks a lot. Appreciate being here. Uh, Admiral, sorry about that. (laughs) No protocols here, brother. Please call me Tim. I'll call you Coach and we'll get underway. Sounds good. We we have a history together and it it centers around the sport of swimming. You tell us about that. Where, Where our common ground there in that sport? Well, I think the common ground is uh, we both swam in college, you at the Naval Academy and myself at the West Virginia University, but I, I had the great honor to coach at the U.S. Naval Academy, and uh, that's how actually I started my career in the Navy was to, uh, I had to join the Navy to become a swim coach and physical education instructor at the Naval Academy, and so I got to do that a few years before you were there, but I think the commonality we have is we shared time at Annapolis and at Lejeune Hall. That's right. That's the swim. That's the swimming pool at the Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland. John, I'm, uh, Coach, I'm wearing a shirt, uh, a Navy swimming shirt, in your honor right now, <laughs> and and I think you know my kids swim in that pool right now with the club team. So it's uh, been a full circle for me. And what's interesting for our listeners. So what happened is is Coach Havlick here was an assistant swim coach before I arrived. And I think you left right when I came in on board in 1985. Isn't that correct? I left uh, actually a year before. I yeah. came in uh, the summer 
the summer of the class of 87, which uh, I had the great honor of having David Robinson, his oh. uh, plebe in swimming this uh, summer before I took off for uh, officer ah. candidate school. So, uh, yeah, Dave Robinson, legendary Hall of Famer and MBA. And yeah, that's right. And he, so you had to help him pass his mile long, mile swim test, right? No, I didn't. I didn't have to do anything. He was, <laughs> he was actually a very good, uh, he was pretty. He was pretty comfortable in the water. Most of the, really? most of the really good athletes at Navy, uh, Napoleon McCallum, a great football player, and some of the others, they they were very comfortable in the water and, and very good. So I didn't have to. Ha- no, I didn't have to help him much. But you know, the beauty of that time was he was six seven when he came to Annapolis, and I think he eventually grew to seven one. Correct or something. yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. There. but he was only six seven. Real skinny and you know t- typical plebe kind of oh, scenario. So, but he I was do. good. You know, he was good in the water. Uh, he was an upperclassman when I came there, and I remember seeing him skateboard around the halls of the dormitory, Bancroft Hall. And uh, yeah, that, that's a good memory. In fact, and so for our listeners, yes, I, I swam at the Naval Academy, and but it, because because Coach Havlick here was the assistant coach before me, he was this mythical legend <laughs> to everybody at the team uh, because you're. Your leadership skills showed even then, and uh, and that and then of course, uh, and then what'd you do next? Because that actually fueled the legend that is, that is you. What would you, what'd you do in the Navy? Well, it's it's nice to hear positive uh, <laughs> thoughts about my coaching experience at Navy. It was uh, it was just one of those things. Was uh, I had been there a little over, less than a year, and you know, and uh, it was I was having it was going well. It was a good tour and everything, but uh, you know, I met a SEAL. Uh, that worked at the, in the physical education department at the academy and uh, got I befriended him and started working out with him. And he started to slowly kind of tell me, uh, kind of feed me the Kool-Aid, so to speak, on the Navy SEALs. And so I did, I did some reading, you know, I looked at the videos that they had out there and, and uh, just kind of, you know, the coaching thing was good, but it was starting to wane a little bit. And I was mm. like, okay, uh, you know, this is kind of a, this was something that kind of interests me. And, uh, yeah. and I wanted to, uh, I didn't know if the coaching thing was something I want to continue. And, and so what, uh, this, uh, hopefully I was smart enough to recognize a, a unique opportunity and take advantage of it, especially at the Academy when, because it was going to take a lot of, uh, paperwork and uh to get to get a commission and then with a guarantee to go to seal training afterwards so mm. uh, that that took about a you know six to nine months of paperwork and going through the chain you know the the bureaucracy of the you know, of the navy personnel command and everything involved but uh probably the best place to do it was at the academy because i got a lot of support and endorsements from uh, the leadership there, especially in the athletic department, because I still think I'm the only assistant who came in to go into the Navy full bore and make it a career. Yeah, that's right. I I know Ed Danny was my assistant coach and he didn't stay like you and make it a career. Um, yeah, that's that's really you. So you came in did you, as a civilian, and then you got your commission to be the coach. Is that what it was? No, we it was a special program uh, 
back, oh, this is, well, 1984, or in 1982, actually, was instead of hiring civilian, going the civilian route to hire assistants, Navy decided to use the Navy to provide them um, assistance. Now, football, basketball still did the civilian hires, but the nine sport, there were nine Olympic sports, so to speak, that uh, got their coaches, their assistants through, um, through the Navy. And so we um, went to boot camp and uh, we came out as E3s, uh, seamen. And, uh, but we had orders to go to the academy uh, when we went to the recruiting office to raise our right hand to ah. join the Navy. So it was just a, it was a formality that we had to go through uh, to, uh, you know, go in the Navy. And then once we were, com- we completed boot camp, we went right to the academy and, and executed three to four year orders. Wow. That's a, you probably the biggest return on investment in that program ever because, and I'll make it, I'll spoiler alert. The, the, the duration of his career lasted 30 years and you, you retired as a Navy captain. And, uh, and so I, I'm, I think it's worth discussing your career here. A Navy, the career of a Navy SEAL is, uh, is in terms of leadership is about as big as it gets. And so from that leadership perspective, I'd love to hear a little bit about your journey starting at BUDS, the, the SEAL training that's just so well known. And Let's have a little bit of talk about that before we get into your, your dissertation and your book, because I, I think there's so much to learn about uh, being a SEAL officer, for, about leadership from a SEAL officer like you, Coach. Yeah, so how you show up in Coronado, California. How did that go? Well, <laughs> it was uh, intense. I can tell you that from the moment you step through the door at the schoolhouse until you graduate, hopefully six months later, or however long it takes you, uh, you know it's it's intense. It was demanding as an officer, as a junior yeah. officer. A yeah. lot was a lot was expected of you, and uh, and basically what the what they taught me about leadership is they you know, it was a lot of OJT, a lot of on the yeah. job, and they put put us. Uh, during training and scenarios that where we had to demonstrate our leadership in leading our class or our boat crew or, you know, your dive, your swim buddy or whatever, um, you know, just leading them towards accomplishing what the instructors uh, wanted you to do. And so that started the moment you walk in the door and carried on, well, carried on definitely through training and then carried over into the teams once I graduated and got into the SEALs, the real SEAL team, so to speak, you know? Yeah, I think uh, most of our listeners don't understand this and uh, just understand this distinction here and that, you know, everybody thinks Navy SEALs, these commandos, they're, they're, they're physically and uh, militarily at the top, which true, but the, there's an interesting dynamic that isn't really well known, and that is that distinction between the officers and the enlisted in the training. And, and so you, as you just touched on, you, you had an extra level of responsibility. You had to lead your men. And, and I, I, this really interests me, uh, coach, because you, you didn't get a whole lot of training there that uh, you didn't have, you know, years in the fleet as a surface officer leading a division 
you did leadership on the swim team at the academy, but that's a little different. So you, you it was it was a fire hose for you, I would assume. In some regards, yes. I mean, you know, the the beauty of, and as far as I think it's still accurate is, Bud's training is or seal basic underwater demolition seal training is the only training where officers and enlisted go through together. Yeah. And so. So that was uh, that was interesting, but it was also, I think, very good because um, it was hard on the officers, but it was hard on the whole class. And so um, the officers were expected a lot of a uh, lot of uh, oversight. You know, a lot of you were definitely in the spotlight of the instructors, yeah. and so a lot was expected of you. I did not get a lot of skills training beforehand but i i would like to think that you know the leadership i displayed in swimming you know and performance and consistency started at west virginia and then you know coaching navy coach you know coach uh lee lawrence at the time at the academy he gave me a lot of leeway a lot of freedom uh to coach and uh and i think that's where i gained a lot of confidence leading people and really the desire, well, if I can coach future leaders at the academy, then why not go into the Navy, big Navy uh, for a profession as an officer, you know? And so that's kind of where I made the d- distinction of, I'm going to go get my commission first before I go to SEAL training. Cause I easily could have just put in a package to go to SEAL training as, as an E3 or E3. Yeah, I was an E3 at the academy. And so wow. that's so I I made a clear choice to become an officer because I felt I I kind of possessed some of the skills that good or leaders have. So I think it worked out, Coach. Absolutely, in a, and that's that's interesting. My my wife is a coach for a high school, and and I I I in this book I'm writing. We won't talk much about my book because I've not finished it yet. But but I do mention that my swim coaches were great examples of leadership to me that I, I, I factored into my development as a leader. So that's, that's good. That really resonates with me. And, um, but you have a story from your, the basic underwater demolition school. Is that what BUDS is stands for? Yeah. Or basic underwater demolition seal training. Seal training. Thank you. You're, and you told me the story a few weeks ago uh, in, in Annapolis. And I'd like you to share the story with everyone, because I think it really encompasses a you know, one of those aha moments as a leader when you have to step up. Go ahead, please. Is it the one where I almost quit story? Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was, uh, I think everybody has a moment in SEAL training. And I, I guess I got to preface it is the, the attrition rate uh, at the BUDS training is 70 to 75%. So, Gosh, which means 70 to 75% of the trainees who start don't make it through. And so, uh, for various reasons, but uh, but the the main filtering system, so to speak, is uh, a week of training called Hell Week, and it's uh, it's a fourth week of training, and it's very early on in the training period because what it really does is help filter out and identify those trainees who want to be there at Bud's training from those that are not don't want to be there, so to speak. And so it's, it's intense. Um, 
physically and mentally. Uh, I think you get about four hours of sleep for the whole week. Starts on a Sunday night, goes to the following Friday. And so you're just constantly on the go, running, swimming, crawling, carrying a painful boat, inflatable boat on the top of your head everywhere you go. And, you know, you're just doing that as a class and all under the instructor staff uh, all day, all night, um, all week, you know, and, and eventually a lot of, a lot of, a lot of the trainees quit, but uh, luckily I made it through, but I did have my moment of weakness probably on Tuesday night. And I'd been up, I'd been up 48 hours, no sleep. And this is a winter class. Yeah, that was February. Yeah, it was a winter hell week. Yeah. And, so, and why does that matter? Well, the water's colder. So. <laughs> it's freaking freezing. I've been out there. It is and, in uh, the 50s and that just gets to you. Yeah. So they tend, they tend, the instructors tend to keep the staff in or the students in the water longer in the winter, you know, than in the summer hell week classes. So, um, you know, I was, I was making it through though. I, you know, I, I was, I was doing, I was chugging along and just carrying on and, you know, trying to uh, stay with the class and do everything they wanted to. But uh, I mean, it's, it's kind of a long story, but I, I kind of lost my momentum uh, and my motivation uh, very early on a Wednesday morning. And, uh, and I mentioned to a classmate of mine that I was thinking of quitting. And, uh, and he was like, Oh, you don't want to do this. And, and, uh, and I was like, well, I, I don't know. I don't know if this is for me. And so any the long story short is we finally went to our first scheduled sleep period, which I mean, so Wednesday morning and after Gosh. being up, after being up since Sunday night and, uh, and I, uh, we finally got, I finally fell asleep. And all of a sudden I hear, uh, I hear the voice of my proctor, who is a SEAL instructor, and he is kind of the go-between uh, the staff and the class. And he can, he can make your life easy or he can make your life hell, basically, because the performance of the class is a reflection of his proctorship, so to speak. So, so you want to try to please him. But he was... He was a good guy. I mean, we called him Instructor Psycho because he could change, <laughs> he could flip on a dime. But he basically he he called he in the middle of the night. This is about three o'clock in the morning, and he just said, uh, "Ensign Havlick, get over here," you know. And so we were sleeping in a isolated spot, but very close nearby was the instructor staff, and they have a fire going and everything. And so they, he calls me over. Very doesn't call, call me close to the fire, but close enough that I could feel the heat coming off the fire. And, and then, like, like I said, I've been wet, cold, and sandy for two and a half days now, and I was freezing. And so I was getting that little temptation of, well, you know, if I quit, I can go over to that fire and get warm and have a cup of coffee, and it'll be all over. And, and it was just kind of fueling the fire. And he, no. yep. and he said, uh, he said uh, and I get over there, and I'm shaking, you know, freaking out and all this other stuff. And I was like, what does he want for me? You know? And, uh, he said, uh, Ensign Havlick, I hear you want to quit. And I was like, Whoa, where did that come? You know, just like, oh, where did that come from? Cause I just mentioned this about 15 minutes ago. And so he didn't say, I was like, well, I'm kind of, I'm thinking about it. And 
And he goes, why do you want to quit? And I said, and I really didn't have a good answer for him. It was just, you know, I, I kind of tell people when I speak, I, you know, and just tell the story that I was just having my moment, you know, and maybe I just needed a hug for my mom or something like that, you know, that was gonna, <laughs> that everything was going to be okay, you know. Yeah. And, and I just, I said, you know, I just don't know if this is what I want to do. And man, he just, he just shot into my face and, you know, I felt his eyes just like burning down into my soul. I mean, he was, we were uh, nose to nose and he got, he got in my face and he goes, uh, you know, Ensign Havlick, you're an officer. Stop thinking about yourself and start thinking about your men. And, and he said that, and then he stepped back and, and he says, do you understand what I just told you? And I said, I think so. And he goes, you're, you're an officer, you're in charge of your boat crew, you're in charge of your people. When you start thinking about them and getting them through all their woes and the troubles they're going through, then all your problems are going to go. You won't focus on that and you'll forget about that and just take care of your men. And that's what we need as officers. And I said, uh, and he goes, do you understand that? And I said, I do. And he goes, all right, I'm going to go over to the fire and I'm going to get a cup of coffee. But when I come back, I want your decision on whether you want to quit or stay with class. And so he leaves me there again, about 3.30 in the morning, freezing, you know, cold, wet, sandy to make probably the biggest decision of my life, you know. And he and as he left to go get his cup of coffee, he started walking away and then he turned around and he says, but Ensign Havlick, don't make a decision in 30 seconds. You'll regret the rest of your life. Wow. And he just left it with that, got his cup of coffee, came back a couple minutes later and said, what's your decision? And I said, I want to go back with the class. And he said, good, let's never talk about this again. And we never did. And, you know, and I'm, I'm so eternally grateful to him and the staff that they saw those attributes uh, that I didn't see myself, you know, that they wanted in the teams and gave me that opportunity because if I would have quit, I'm not sure what I would have done, but I know I never would have gotten to do what I did for 31 years, you know, and so very grateful, very grateful to that. And that was a huge, huge moment for me. Absolutely. And there's, yeah, I know I'm indebted to so many people who carried me along the way what I love about your story, Coach, is that uh, that that I think is one of the most important elements of leadership. It's not necessarily being in charge, having the power, being the voice in the spotlight. That's all there. It has to be acknowledged and you have to go through that purposely so you do well at it. But it's taking care of your people. And uh, and I, I identify this because it was what I focused on in the Navy I, I focused on that at NOAA. I, 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 that was, we had a lot of challenges and I constantly worked at inspiring them, giving something them to look forward to at a time, at times when there might not have been a lot. And uh, yeah, but it was great. I just, thank you. That was a really fantastic story. Thinking about others before yourself gets you through so much. Um, and it just it applies everywhere, but well, good story. Then you had these 30 years in the teams and uh, we could we could spend quite a time talking about that, but I'm I'm interested if you do have a a or several moments in your career as an officer where um, that illustrate uh, a really important leadership lesson. I, I have still getting to know you, and I'd 
I'd love to hear one that comes to mind, if you don't mind. Well, I, that's, that's a great question because I don't know if there was ever really one moment. I mean, I, I think what resonated best for me were the, you know, I, I didn't, I struggled with who I was when I got into the teams and in the leadership role because there was always, I, I used to get a lot of feedback because I'm a pretty, I think I'm pretty quiet and I'm kind of stoic in some regards. You know, I know what I need to do and how to do it. I just, I'm not very outgoing, so to speak, you know. And so the beauty of Buds got me out of my shell, so to speak, a little a little bit more. But when I got to the teams, you know, as a young junior officer, trying to figure out your leadership style and how you're going to do it. You're trying to figure out the Navy, how it works and, and how you're going to get through and succeed, hopefully, you know, and get if you make it a career succeed and go a long way. And so I was trying to figure out what, what kind of officer I wanted to be because uh, there's the teams at the time back then was, it was a big boys club, you know, and work hard, play hard mentality. And, and so I was trying to figure that out because I like both, I like, I like both concepts, you know, and, uh, and I was trying to, okay, how do I fit in? and be a good leader but um, you know still have fun as a seal and and as a naval officer and so i I resonated to the officers who were pretty quiet like same demeanor as i did but they just you had confidence in their abilities that they made good decisions good rational decisions they weren't into themselves and and they really they uh they had your back and they took uh, what you had to say, they appreciated your input and your feedback because I worked for a lot of officers who didn't want to hear anything from you. It's just, hey, you do it my way or you don't like it, you know. And Did you ever work for McRaven? Uh, not till my last tour at Special Operations Command. He was SOCOM commander when I when I got to SOCOM, yes. And so I, I did work for him um, for about a year and a half before he retired. And then I retired a couple months later. So yeah, he was a good guy. I mean, he, he was a good, he was a good leader. He was a good officer. He cared about his people and, you know, he smart and, uh, really took care of it. He, he, I think his biggest feature is he really, he initiates some programs to take care of not only the service members, but the families as well, you know? And so he, he initiated a lot of the programs that still exist. I'm taking care of families and, and service members and, and some of the trials that trials and tribulations you experience through deployments, many deployments and separations and stuff. So he was good. Um, yeah, this is for our listeners. This is Admiral Bill McRaven, the uh, four-star Navy SEAL. He was in charge of the raid that killed Osama bin Laden and also wrote the book, Make Your Bed, uh, which came, which was based on his viral commencement speech at the University of Texas when he was before he became the chancellor. And I think I mentioned to you, Coach, I had met with him very early on in my time at NOAA in 2018, January 2018. It was kind of interesting because he, I, I come in, I'm a political appointee, and he at the time was writing all these articles basically condemning Trump. And I, I, I and of course, I when I met with him, we have all these common friends like you, and uh, we had a great meeting. And um, I had to sort of take a pause. And, and 
when I read his articles and the respect I have for him is immense, I thought, am I doing the right thing here? And he advised me when I saw him, he said, Hey, Tim, just because uh, I said, Hey, I've never done this political appointee. Uh, what do you have any advice for me? And he said, I do. He said, just do the right thing until you can't and then leave. And I thought, okay. And I just followed that advice and it, I was able to keep my integrity, but it was a, it was, it was a constant tightrope walk. Uh, but I, he was my influence there. And I mentioned it because I, I, I mentioned it because I talked about him on several shows. Um, well, that's that's all very good. That's interesting. And um, uh, I guess where I wanted to go now, and you can cover anything you want, actually. But um, I'd love to talk a bit about your book that you wrote with your fellow swim teammate from West Virginia University. And by the way, a, a coach here is in the West Virginia University Sports Hall of Fame. I just saw right. you uh, celebrate, recognize the sixth anniversary of that. Uh, congratulations to you, sir! Thank you. That was a great. That was a great day. That's really neat. And uh, and yeah, so you're one of your friend teammates, Bill Treasure, and you wrote a book. Uh, tell us about that book, please. Well, Bill, Bill was uh, the, Bill was actually a diver at uh, West Virginia, and so you know you know the deal between swimmers and divers. There's there's a natural, you know, head butting, so to speak. Yeah, but, yeah. You know, there's great respect. I mean, I remember coaching at Navy. Uh, we never would have beat Army without the divers. Oh but gosh, yeah. You never get. You never gave them the credit they deserve. So <laughs> because they were divers. So yeah, Bill and we, I have we, to... we, we we the swimmers are pretty snobby about that. But man, divers are in good, great shape. They're good. Oh, absolutely. So Bill, you know, Bill was. Uh, he came in as a freshman when I was finishing up and. And uh, we became friends and then I went off and, you know, did the Navy thing. And he went off and got into the consulting world, started at Accenture and then just branched off onto his own business, uh, Giant Leap Consulting, and uh, has been doing that for, God, almost 25, 26 years now. And, uh, you know, so I never really stayed in touch with him or figured out what I was going to do. But I remember uh, he was at a football game. And honoring my senior year, my, uh, we went undefeated and we were the first team in West Virginia history to go undefeated. Uh, so they, they were honoring us at the football game, which was pretty cool. And Bill was there and we sat down and talked and I had retired a couple of years before that and, you know, still figuring out what I wanted to do. And, and so, you know, he was doing the consulting thing and uh, he, a lot of his, his brand is courageous leadership, you know, taking that step into the unknown where there's growth in uh, uh, leadership, you know. And uh, so I liked I liked his I like what I had seen and did a little research on him. And we just talked and I said, you know, do you you should bring me in. Let me tell my seal stories, you know. <laughs> well, this is the great distinction because and I like how you singled yourself out. There's all these leadership books out there that that preach about leadership, but the authors wouldn't I wouldn't say are the the most experienced or practice. You're the one with real experience. Well, I, I you know the the great the great deal about the book with Bill was that he's got all this time in the civilian world, you know, and then I bring my perspective from the military side of the house. And so what we we used to talk about all the time, we'd have if I was doing a talk for him, you know, he would kind of give me the 
one, two, three, or ABCs about the audience and, you know, the message and stuff like that. And then I would groom my presentation towards that. But we also started talking about just a lot of leader, really good leaders that do stupid things, you know? Oh, yeah. And let's, but what's the title of the book and the subtitle, importantly? The, the title of the book is The Leadership Killer, Reclaiming Humility in an Age of Arrogance. What a great, so that is just a fantastic title. Yeah, wow. So we tried to focus, you know, we identified in our book case, you know, all factual scenarios where, you know, good leaders had done dumb stuff. Things, yeah. Dumb stuff that they know they shouldn't have done and were relieved. And, um, and so, but we kind of focused, uh, on why, why they would do it. And we kind of came up with the, you know, start thinking about hubris, individual hubris and this excessive overconfidence that sometimes I think, I don't know how you felt about it, but I remember the higher you go up in the chain of command, you know, the, it's very power and leadership is very seductive, you know, and uh, there's a lot of opportunities that open up to you and more people work for you and treat you differently. And, and you get the nice office, you get the nice parking spot, you know, all that stuff that comes with being in charge. But, you know, there's other things that come with it. And, you know, it, it was just one of these things is like, why do, why do you do, why did you do what you did that ultimately led to you being relieved or fired, you know, and, and it was just common sense. Yeah. Common it's just losing sight, losing yeah, sight yeah. of that, of that, the, the, the basic why you're here. You're not here for yourself, but you, you're, this is so true because I've been at some pretty high levels and, and especially when you make flag in the Navy, gosh, every, everything changes. And it's, you have this team of people who are, are, are always looking out for you and doing on whatever you say. And, and it becomes, yeah, you just got to ground yourself every day. So the, one of the former chiefs of Naval operation. Uh, when I made flag, first of all, when you when you make admiral in the Navy, all the other admirals in the Navy send you a note. And I'll say, hey, good job, Tim. Thank you. You know, I can't wait to work with you. And you, you did great. And I got all these notes like that. But then I got one note from the head of the Navy, Admiral John Greener. And it said, congratulations. Now it's time to, to take a big humble pill. And that's it. That's all he said. And I got it. I got that. You just got to every day. Th- yeah. So go on, go on. And you're yeah, both- So that was, that was basically is, you know, we identified what we think is a leadership killer is just an individual dangerous overconfidence or arrogance, so to speak, you know, I'm in charge. I'm important, you know, and, lack of humility. Yeah. And, and you, you forget your roots and where you came from and you're in, some and yes, re- maintaining your your humility, and that's kind of what we wrote uh, the book about. And we shared our own individual stories on, you know, good and bad times, and our 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 exposure to humility. And and really, my story, you know, it's it's a long one and one I'm not overly proud of. But I, I Oh, I, you should you should be proud. You served for thirty years in the Navy as a SEAL. I'm well, proud I mean, of you. I had, that? I had, I had a good moment. I had a lot of positive, but I also had a negative that um, I had to get out for about a year and a half, and and uh, for a long various reasons. But a lot of it was I became very confident. I had just left uh, Naval Special Warfare Development Group, which is oh. our 
yeah. premier operational special mission unit, you know, and I thought I was riding high and I knew everything. And, and um, I always remember one of my first CEOs telling me that uh, sometime in your Navy, sometime in your career in the Navy, you're going to work for somebody who doesn't like you. Wow. And, and it, and it, and he, and he told me, um, they're not going to tell you why they don't like you. Mm. They just won't like you, you know? And I ran ran into that and unfortunately didn't turn out well for me, but I had to get out because I failed to promote to Lieutenant commander. I didn't know this. Yeah. Yeah. So, wow. um, I had to get out, uh, and a very humiliating and humbling experience for me, you know? Oh, so I had to. Uh, I made a, after feeling sorry for myself and kind of just going into uh, the depths, dark, I started drinking too much. And I was, I was evil. I was angry. And, um, and I, but I made a, I made a choice to, okay, I got to stop f- feeling sorry for myself and kind of use my SEAL training to, uh, this may be the biggest, hardest mission of my life. And that was to get back on active duty status, sit back and wow. And so I, you know, I came up with a plan and it all worked out, but I also, but something I don't talk about and you, <laughs> you as an admiral may, may have heard of something like this, but I found that, uh, one of my fitness reports, my performance perform- reports on my official record had been altered to really? the and, uh, and I didn't know about it. And so. Uh, I was able to, once I discovered that, I worked with the Board of Corrections for Naval Records to expunge that piece of paper because uh, I did not know that it had been changed and somehow it made it onto my official record. So it really didn't, it violated, I didn't know about it and the Navy never should have done that because the proper way of doing and changing a fitness report was not followed. And so somehow, but probably more than likely is what it is the report that kept me from promoting. And so that was expunged and I got it cleared and I got back in the Navy and I figured I would kind of like uh, when I made the decision to not quit and go back with my class, I said, well, I'm getting a second opportunity. Let's take advantage of it and let's just move on and make Boy, it Boy, this is, this is extraordinarily rare. I, I didn't know this about you, but that is, that is a, near miracle in terms of the Navy's bureaucracy to overcome that. Wow. You coach, that is really incredible. But yet that's probably the most profound lesson here in that. And I, I've seen this so many times and myself included where a failure actually makes you, and you know, this as a seal, uh, if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger and you're proof positive. Like nobody else I know. I've, I've told a story coach about uh, my, my, commanding officer of the aircraft carrier USS Kitty Hawk, who uh, we did the first deployment uh, on uh, conducting strikes in Afghanistan with a special mission task force, no, no air wing. And, and I came back, had to turn the ship around and get it into Iraq for the first strikes there in 2003. In between that time, this CO got fired and it wasn't because of any misconduct. It was because this ship was the oldest ship in the Navy and he wasn't doing enough to basically should have fired the chief engineer, et cetera. And, but he's a great guy. And we, we all felt so guilty. And what I of all the leaders I've seen, including McRaven, the one I learned the most from was from this captain, Tom Heil. He didn't protest. He didn't 
go to the press. He didn't get a lawyer. He just said, I, sir. And not only did he continue and, and not, and Lee, he left his post. He stayed in the Navy and deployed again as the chief of staff of a strike group. And he never, ever said, you know, said that, that he was wronged. He never talked about that. He just continued to maintain a good attitude. And it was, and he, he taught me more than anybody else that it isn't about you. It, it's about the service. It's about your, your, your sailors. And, uh, and you are an amazing example of that too. Well, I mean, it was, it was a hard the year and a half I was out. It was extremely difficult for me. But the one thing that kept me going was I went, I started, I got back in the reserves. And, and so I would go up to uh, Little Creek where the, uh, for the East Coast SEAL, you know, reserve units drilled. And, and I would see my buddies out, especially the guys from Damnick uh, out, out in town at night, you know, and, and a lot of them didn't know that I had gotten out. And, and a lot of them would say, I thought you were a good guy, you know, and, and, you know, they were genuinely disappointed in the news, you know, and so that kind of fed me to keep me going. Like, I want to, I want to, I want to, I want to write the ship, so to speak, you know, and so, but what I, what the way, you know, it was, it was, you know, I went from the very top to ground zero, you know, yeah. and I, I, I often say that when I got back in, I was just so happy to be back in something that I love. I love the Navy. I love the SEALs back in that opportunity and, and that it actually humbled me and made me a better officer. Absolutely. I went back to who I was, my core yeah, and what I believed in. And, and I think that's what made me successful because I got another 17 years out of, out of the Navy. So I ended up getting, and then the 31 years. So, yeah. But uh, yeah, I, I, think I have was, a similar story here at NOAA and I, I could say this um, now that I'm not in the government, but long story short, I was the acting administrator and I was replaced by another assistant secretary and, and I maintained my position as the deputy administrator. Um, and the only reason I wasn't fired outright, I didn't have a good relationship with the commerce department because they were basically dysfunctional. And, uh, but I didn't get fired because I had a close relationship with the Senate commerce committee chair, Senator Roger Wicker. So high level politics here saved me, but, um, you know, but I didn't, I, I wasn't the, the head guy. I was the number two. And for me, that was the best thing that ha could have happened to me because it, it gave me a big humble pill. And it just made me so grateful after I learned the news just to have that job still. And that's when I went into kind of overdrive to accelerate Noah's leadership of the of the blue economy, the topic of this, this podcast this series. And, uh, and it, and it really, I had my best work, uh, after that period. And, uh, again, this is really, this really uh, is just a really powerful. And I think a great message for everybody is, is exactly that is you can learn through those, um, those, those speed bumps and uh, yours was a big one. Yeah, man. Yeah, well, I, I, you know, I, I, I think the, the smartest thing I did when I got back in was I got smart on how the Navy, worked you know yeah, yeah. and uh so i so i volunteered for, to sit on promotion and advancement boards and good for you and i went down and i learned kind of the the way the navy does business you know and so um i learned how to write a fitness report or an eval and an enlisted member of my command and just so, you know you, there are a lot of sea lawyers out there telling you uh you know this is how things do and everything but getting that experience and knowing how the system worked and everything really, I used it for towards my advantage. But again, the, the whole experience humbled me 
hugely, you know, wow. and, yeah. but it made me, made me a better person and a better leader and officer. And that's, and, and human I, being. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Cause I, I, again, I got back into the Navy, something that I loved and I missed every moment I was out of it, you know? And you're so, so you just, you were grateful for every day. And I, I think I've shared with some people, I lost my house in hurricane Katrina and, and we lost everything we owned except for our cars and our boat, which was very nice to have. <laughs> and, uh, but boy, is that, does that really, uh, humble you when you're put down on the lowest level of Maslow's needs hierarchy of just finding shelter. Right. And, and so and now it just has made me so much more tolerant when people, other people go through suffering. Oh, I, I look and I, I, re, I relate and I, I don't, I definitely, my empathy levels are much higher. Um, yeah, well, I mean, one of the best, you know, I was, I got back in and I did a tour, but then I did really afterwards, I did my first staff tour and I went to, uh, commander third fleet. Oh, was, really? Oh. I was a SEAL officer on, on the staff. And, uh, uh, I even knew the me talk guy that his name was Jeff something. And, uh, Jeff Bacon. Guy. I forget who it, it was. was. Jeff Bacon. I know him. He was a he's, good guy. Really good guy. He's the guy who does this comic strip called broadside. Did you know that? No, I did not. Know it's a very that. famous comic strip throughout the Navy and it's syndicated, et cetera. Jeff Bacon, look him up. He's a great guy. He's a good uh, guy. But, uh, uh, yeah. but one of the, the commander of third fleet at the time was vice Admiral, um, again, Dennis. Oh McGinn. yeah. Denny McGinn. Yeah. And he, he was a good guy. He, he gave me, you know, I, I, he was a good leader, you know, and, and really a big tour for me, you know, kind of a oh, recovery tour. Big time. Yeah. Yeah. I, I did well there because I had, good leaders there with the Admiral McGinn and then my J3, who was a slow surface warfare officer, which I never thought would happen, was great, you know? Who was so, that? Who was that? Who was that? Oh, God. Terry. Craft? Oh, God, oh no. no. Swoe. Mm. He was a slow. Well, hey, Terry uh, Foster. Terry Foster. Okay. So, hey, mm -hmm. Coach, first off, let's make sure we tell the, our listeners this, the name of your book again. Uh, the title is, go ahead again. It's The Leadership Killer, Reclaiming Humility in an Age of Arrogance. Gosh, that's just great. Uh, and you have really epitomized that in an ama amazing way. Um, I I'd like to finish up here and have you talk a bit about your, your dissertation. And, uh, and um, there's a, there's a, I think there's a leadership lesson in it. Um, and you don't have to get too wonky. But, but I think the, the topic is really fascinating. So could you present that for us? Yeah, I just a great opportunity. Went to, I got bored and used my post 9-11 benefits to go back to school and get my dissertation uh, at the University of Pennsylvania in the Chief Learning Officer Program. And so yeah, when the opportunity came up to do my study, I took, uh, I did something I was very interested in. And I uh, did a comparative analysis on how U.S. national team swimmers cope with stress to perform at the highest levels of international competition and how Navy SEALs cope with stress to perform at the highest levels on the battlefield. How interesting. Yeah. And so, and so I, I wanted to, my hope is I, and my hypothesis was basically that even though probably the end states of the two groups, you know, winning, winning or losing versus 
mission accomplishment, mission failure, often involving uh, life or injury or death or injury. You know, um, I, I thought the way they handled stress and prepared to perform, there would be similarities and differences between the two groups. And I found four four commonalities between the two groups. Well, yeah, so it's interesting. Young. Yeah, what, what are they? Well, the first one was uh, they, they had both groups had an absolute trust in their training. So whatever they had done, they totally believed in it. And when it came time to performing, they didn't worry about had they done enough because they knew they had done it and they believed in everything they had done to the moment they stepped on the block or stepped outside the wire. You know? They knew they were ready. They were ready. The second one was uh, they both groups adhered to a strict routine. And so, you know, swimmers, as you well know, uh, and especially in college and, you know, you practice school, study, you know, that's your life, you know. And so you're so attuned to that, uh, that you follow, you stay with that as you train to get ready for a major competition. Same thing with the SEALs, especially on deployment, you get the concept of battle rhythm. You know, you get, you, you get into your, your cycles, whatever it is you got to do. The sooner you get into it, the better you're able to handle all the demands that come in expected of you. And so you get into your battle rhythm and you trust that routine. You trust that battle rhythm that gets you ready to go out and perform. The third one was, uh, they both focused only on what those things they could control that, um, you know, the, I talked to several Olympians, you know, and they, they said, you know, I, when we got to the Olympics, I couldn't worry about the buses. I couldn't worry about the, where I slept, uh, who my roommate was and the Olympic village, the bed I got, you know, uh, that was left for the media requests. It, that was part of the deal. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, the only thing they really could control and focus was their their race and their preparation to get ready to perform. And then for the SEALs, it was, um, you know, all the training, everything they had done um, that got them ready and they planned and they tried to execute as best they, pot, they could, but they couldn't always control what the enemy did. Can't control the weather. You can't. Uh, Know, there's things that pop up so you do the best you can to prepare yourself to execute and uh, have options available if things kind of go astray so to speak so that was the third one and then the last one was um, they both groups utilized healthy and adaptive distractions and so what I meant for what I meant for that is like hey um, the swimmers when they're in the ready room getting ready to walk out on the pool deck you know um, pretty tense guy I, they expressed it as a, probably the most intense, stressful period, you know, before oh, they gosh. Yes. on the block and there you are uh, maybe with a fellow teammate or colleague or anything, but the dynamic is really weird because, you know, you know I want to kill this guy because I want to win, you know, or something like that, or gal too, you know, and it's, it's a very strange dynamic they talked about, but how did they beat that stress, you know, and a lot of them just, you know, iPods, uh, their their phones they listen to music uh again they they visualized uh there's all different things out there for the seals um i found their biggest healthy and adaptive distraction was working out you know it's that's what we 
it's, you know, we started out physical and that's what carried us, carries us through the battlefield. And even present day, I'm still very physical on that, but I, they believe in physical exercise as a way to decrease the stress and help them perform to, to get ready for the battlefield. And so, you know, I tried to stay away from uh, alcohol use or tobacco or any of those perceived as negative or, you know, non-adapted type uh, strategies or techniques. I just tried to focus on and what anybody could use. And so really the beauty of what I found in my study was even though these, these two groups had these commonalities, it, it's non-medicinal, it's non-clinical. And so anybody can use these, you know, right, anybody right. in any profession, any gender, anything, it's because stress is prevalent in all aspects of life, you know? And so these are just a couple techniques that here, here are the, the members of these two highest performing groups that you can think of athletically and militarily. And they use these common sense approaches to perform, get ready to perform in their respective uh, you know, battlefield or, or the pool. And so, uh, and then I share the story you know, so as you well know, when you're proposing and defending your study, the big question you always got to answer is, so what? You know, why is this study important? And I used myself as I said, I used the some of the techniques uh, or strategies or sayings that we had in SEAL training, and I applied them uh, as a student when I was a student because I was experiencing a lot of experiencing a lot of stress with oh gosh finishing up school you yep. know the dissertation is stress very stressful and so you know how did i get through how did i get through bud's seal training well our motto is the only easy day was yesterday and i how did i apply that as a student i just changed it to read the only easy paper was the last yeah, one that's right and then hell week how did i get you know the hell week saying is generally you take hell week one day, one meal at a time. You know, you can't worry about Friday when you're starting on Saturday or Sunday. There's a lot of things involved in the middle. And so, you know, I, I changed it to for my dissertation is I, you take your dissertation, one chapter, one interview at a time. And so what I by just using those common sayings for me, what it did is took the enormity of the project that I was facing and broke it down into more, uh, more applicable things that I could control and work on, you know, smaller segments of the process that I could control and it reduced my stress and allowed me to produce quality work and eventually complete everything I needed to do to get my degree and, and become a doctor. And that's, so I, I used, so when I told that to my committee member, he was like, okay, sounds good. Makes sense to me, you know. You pass. And that's so that's what I want to do with what I'm trying to do now with my study is, you know, use my findings so that anybody can use it. I, you know, because I, I, I believe in them and I believe they work. I absolutely do. And in fact, I like that you said this is non medicinal, non clinical. This is just, it's practical advice, things that can be done. And I think it's very relevant from the leadership perspective because. I was always asked by people in the Navy and at NOAA, and now even today when I mentor people about my, my leadership tips, and it always will 
one question about handling stress will come up. And I remember feeling this question all the time at NOAA. And, uh, and I was like you, I, I, I held it to a routine and I, physical fitness was a big, big part of that and, and accepting what you can control and cannot. And, uh, those are just all really, really good tips, uh, coach and doctor, uh, Captain, how God, where do I, where do I end? And, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I often but, say I want to get enough monikers that when I ultimately move on in life, uh, I'm probably get buried at Arlington National Cemetery. They're going to have to put two headstones on <laughs> one of my graves or not just one, you know, with all the titles I have. There you go. <laughs> well, keep it up. Uh, I, I, th- I don't know if you heard me joke about this, but I had a really good mentor who was before me, the oceanographer of the Navy, and, and I took over after him. And uh, John White, love him. And uh, he would introduce me at, when I was at NOAA, and he'd say, well, uh, you uh, the titles I had at the time, I was the honorable as an appointee. Uh, uh, no, first of all, as an admiral, and then I was a doctor, and I was an honorable, and I was, and if you, and I was devoted to my country. So he said, Tim is truly an ADHD leader. <laughs> and there's some partial truth to that. It's, but, it's funny, but you, yeah, you do have a, you have some long titles. Well, so. it's all good. I think dad and, and husband are my favorite. And yeah, um, absolutely. And uh, yeah, well, hey, uh, so we're at the end of our journey here, Coach. Do you have any final words that you want to share with our audience about leadership and life? No, I I think, you know, I I try to, you know, I think the beauty of what SEAL training taught me was, um, and even all the talks I give and out in the leadership world, I try not to overthink leadership. I try to, I focus it down to like four things. And, you know, really it was like, Tell me my mission. What what do you want me to do? Let me gather as much information as I could can get my people involved in the planning process. And then I tried to make the best decision that accomplished the mission and brought everybody home. And and I that's the way I've tried to carry and approach everything I that I do in life now. You know, and that's how I look at leadership. Maybe very simplistic to some folks, but to me it made sense and it was and it worked and was effective for me. Well, you've done great, and you've uh, definitely seen your share of adversity. Maybe when I have you on round two, we'll talk about that gunshot wound. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to bring you back, because that's a great story in itself. And uh, But we are at the end of our journey, and I wanted to share with our listeners that uh, from this blue economy perspective, I've had on scientists and technology wizards and senior policymakers all working in this space. But every one of them has had a leadership challenge and continues to, to execute leadership in some capacity. And so I really hope this episode uh, helped you reflect a bit about uh, what kind of components make a good leader. Uh, we are blessed to have had such an expert and authority on the topic as John Coach Havlick. Uh, Dr. Thank you so much for joining us. You've just been terrific. Thanks, Tim. I appreciate it. So thank you all for joining us in this latest leg of our journey on the American Blue Economy podcast, where we looked at leadership and how important an element is in advancing the American Blue Economy. Please join us for our next episode in October. This is your host, Admiral Tim Gallaudet, CEO of Ocean STL Consulting. Thank you for joining us, shipmates. I look forward to getting underway with you next time. Mm